I'm Dominic. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastor elders here. So Ephesians chapter 1, we'll get to it in about five or six minutes. But first, I'm going to say a few other things. Also, I'll be reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. So if you're using an app or whatever, just find the CSB. It's a great translation. We're going to be using that for this series, actually. Christian Standard Bible, CSB. Can we pray together? Father, thank you for going to such great lengths to bring us home from being orphans and bring us into your family. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience to the Father. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are here with us, constantly showing us who the Father is, constantly working in us to cry out, Abba, Father. And we ask that you would continue to do that work today. We know that um, you know us better than we know ourselves. And we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to hear, receive every single thing that you would have for us. I surrender my mind and my mouth and my plans, my notes to you. And Lord, nothing that I have to say would be um, worth listening to for the next 45 minutes. But if you want to speak something to us, then that's good and beautiful and worthwhile. So our ears are open, our hearts are open, our minds are open to receive everything you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we finished an 18-week series on the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, I was talking to somebody the other, last week, from our church, and they said, man, did this this Holy Spirit series just, like, blow your guys' expectations out of the water for what you expected and hoped for for the church? And it was a good question for me because I can get so, like, thinking about what's happening in the future and what's coming around the corner and what God's wanting to do around the corner that sometimes I can forget to just stop and look at what just happened or what's happening right now. And so it was a good question for me. I guess the answer is, yeah. Um, it did kind of blow our expectations away in the sense that we didn't really have any expectations. We just knew that God was wanting us to talk about the Holy Spirit for the summer. And um, so thankful for the great work that he did in many of our lives. I was talking to a guy last week who's he's in his 60s, and he was like, I've been a Christian for a long time, and something changed this summer for me. Something changed drastically for me this summer. And um, if you were here at the anniversary, you heard dozens and dozens of stories a couple weeks ago about how God's been moving. We baptized 40 people that day professing their faith in Jesus. Um, And over the last several months, we've talked a lot about God bringing breakthrough and breaking down walls and breaking through dams. And if you weren't here over the summer, but Reality Ventura is your home church, then It might be a good idea for you to just spend some time um, listening to those sermons that were online, getting caught up to speed. But even if you can't, and even if you feel like you missed out on something over the summer, I just want to say that that's all right. Because God is constantly moving. And we've seen incredible breakthrough in people's lives in recent months, and that's awesome. But because we're humans, we we get so goal-oriented that we're like, that is thing happened now and it's like done. We're like revival has come or freedom has come or breakthrough has come. We want to like put a period on it. But that's not the way that God works. When God does something, even when it's something like substantial and it seems like final, it's always leading to something else, right? It's always like, there's like this evolution that's always leading to something else. And uh, he's still on the move. It's like when a, cha- uh, a slave gets free. The, the hardest part isn't getting free. The hardest part is learning to live as a free person later on. And so the chains coming off, for instance, is just the beginning because God's always moving. And so if you weren't here this summer and you heard a lot of cool stories of all the good, awesome stuff God was doing, don't be discouraged. Britney Spears does residencies at places like hotels in Las Vegas. God doesn't do residencies though, right? God doesn't do, wasn't like, had a, didn't have a residency at Reality Ventura over the summer. Now he's like moved on somewhere else. He's here always among us. Psalm 121 says that he never sleeps or slumbers. So don't be discouraged. God's moving. If you're still in need of some breakthrough, God's doing stuff. Let me use another picture as we transition into this like introduction for this next series that we're getting into. Um, We've seen this picture of a, a tree recently, several, several of us um, at different times. And 
if we are trees in God's field, then God is like the divine vine dresser who is doing his work of pruning in us, on us, in order to cause us to be healthy and bear more fruit. And it could be a different type of work that has been happening in our lives or is, is happening right now or is about to happen. And it could be connected to what God's been doing at Reality Ventura or not. I'm not necessarily talking about that. I'm just talking to the children of God here. And I see three different people as we move into this next series, this new season as a church. One, for some of us, um, recently you feel like your tree has been almost like just uprooted. I'm talking like spiritually speaking, like your roots have just been like uprooted. The foundation that you've been living from has been uprooted and God has planted a new baby tree in its place. And you probably feel like your whole perspective and your paradigm is starting to shift. For you, I believe that this next season is about letting those new roots grow deep and then learning to live from a new foundation, from a a new, entirely new root system, if you will. For others, you have a strong, really good foundation. Um, You're like an old established tree, but you know how big old established fruit trees can get. If they're not pruned and cut down often enough, and they're not cared for enough, the fruit that they start to bear is actually really dry and not vibrant. We've all tasted avocados from like a hundred-year-old avocado tree that hasn't been taken care of. It looks beautiful on the outside, but you open it up and it's just dry. There's, there's no lushness to it. Um, well, maybe for you what has happened or is happening or is about to happen is that you're going to need to, if you're willing, allow the divine vine dresser to come in and do that necessary but uncomfortable work of pruning your branches and cutting you down so that you can be healthy and bear vibrant, sweet, lush fruit again. For you, this next season isn't about new roots and a new foundation and learning to live from that, but rather the pruning that the Father wants to do in your life, and then remembering that foundation and letting the new fruit grow. And then others, your roots are good. You've had all the pruning you need for this season. You've been cut down. You're bearing good, vibrant fruit. That's awesome. For you, this next season may just be about strengthening that foundation, watering that soil, remembering what the root system is that you live from. Or you may be some variation of one of those. Either way, this next series and this next season is really about roots. It's about our foundation. And this next series will, will be three parts. And it will start with identity. The foundation of identity as Christians. Namely, that we are children of God first and everything else second. That we are children of God first and everything else second. We are what we will be calling kingdom kids so to speak. And from there, we will transition to the second part of the series, talking about what it looks like to not just be individual kingdom kids, but to be kingdom kids in a family, to be part of a body, to be what we are calling a kingdom family. We're not just individual Christians, but brothers and sisters in a family. And then from that foundation of identity as kingdom kids, then what it means to be interwoven as a family of believers, moving into what will be the third part, talking about the kingdom Come And what it looks like when the kingdom comes, not just in us as individual Christians and kingdom kids, and not just in us corporately as a family, but also through us to our communities and contexts. And we are framing this whole series under the umbrella of kingdom, as you can see from this image behind me. And here's why we're framing it under the umbrella of kingdom. When we're born again, when we become Christians, we are transferred from a domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. When Jesus came to earth, he brought with him the kingdom of God. In Matthew 12, we see Jesus telling these religious leaders, hey, the kingdom of God is upon you. Why? Why was it upon them? Well, because Jesus was there and Jesus is the king. People ask, where, where is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? It seems so ambiguous, elusive. Well, the kingdom of God, simply put, is where the king is reigning. The kingdom of God is where the king is reigning. And Jesus is the king. But when we talk about the kingdom, it can often seem so grand and almost out of reach. I mean, it's a kingdom, right? Even the word just in and of itself, it's like so massive. And then it's not just any kingdom, but it's God's kingdom. And God is infinite, which means his rule as a king is infinite, which means his kingdom is infinite. But God is not just holy 
and infinite. He is also present and personal. And so is his kingdom. And so when we talk about our identity as Christians and what it means to be a family in the body of Christ, we want to keep the idea of kingdom before us to both remind us of God's infiniteness, that his kingdom is glorious and massive and holy and wonderful and out of reach, but also that through Christ and because we are children of God, it is personal, present, intimate, and accessible. And as you may have guessed, how we're going to be looking at these themes of identity and family is through the book of Ephesians, where you should be open to already. Next week, Billy is going to give a proper introduction to the book of Ephesians, but today is more of a prologue. It's like a Kingdom Series prologue for this entire series. And I just want to dip really quickly into the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1 to just set up a couple of things. So like I said earlier. There's three different parts to this kingdom series that we're going to be covering, but it all starts with this very familial thing. There's this very communal thing. It's a family concept. I'd like to spend the rest of our time together sharing a a broad picture of where we're headed in the next several months, and it's it's like a preface for a book is what today is. Hopefully you'll catch the heart of God in this and kind of whet our appetites for what's coming down the pike. I know for us this week, even in our preaching meeting, we have a preaching meeting every Thursday, and uh, after the preaching meeting, Chad was just like, dude, I'm excited for this series. That's how I felt all week. Like, I hopefully, what we're doing today will just kind of get us excited about the things that, that God's going to be speaking to us. Ephesians chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 5. I'm going to highlight some things here as I read too. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted. Did you catch the emphasis of some of these words here? And did you catch the familial language that Paul is using here? First of all, look at it. He doesn't just say God. He says, God our Father. God our Father. That is familial language, right? Only families have fathers. The second thing we see is that this Father chose us for something. Verse 5, He chose us for what? Read it. Read it. Chose us for what? For adoption. He chose us to be adopted. Christian, God chose you for adoption, which would make sense. If God is our Father, then we are His children. If God is our Father, then we are His children. Only, uh, only someone who has children can be a father. And then thirdly, who did He choose to be adopted? Was it, was it me? Read verse 5. Who did He choose to be to adoption? Who was it? Us. It was us. He didn't just predestine you or just me. He predestined us, which means that, that, that this whole thing is not some like silo. I'm just a Christian over here on like an island, but is this communal, plural, plurality thing, this family thing. Okay, so remember we're framing this whole series in kingdom. And what we just saw was a father, we saw children, and we saw family. The first thing I want to make note of is that in the kingdom of God, The king is a father. In the kingdom of God, the king is actually a father. Now, there's a lot of things that God is. God is a ruler. God is a judge. God is a king. God is a commander of his armies. He's a warrior himself. There's a lot of things that God is, but notice that Paul doesn't use any of those titles or descriptors here. He uses the title father. What if Everything that God is comes from him being a father first. Isn't that how we see God interacting with Adam all the way in the beginning, very first creation? He gives Adam authority and sovereignty, hands it over to him, just like a a father hands over sovereignty and authority of whatever they own. And then what about Jesus? Isn't that how we see Jesus relating to and referring to God? Does he call him master? Does he call him commander? Does he call him your honor? No, he calls him 
Father. And when Jesus taught his followers to pray, why didn't he choose a different word than Father? Why not a different title than Father? Why not address God in some other way than Father? Jesus could have said, pray like this, our creator, or our provider, or our sustainer, our redeemer. How about king, our king? Jesus had just been talking about the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is among you. Why not say, when you pray to God, pray like this, our king. God certainly is a king, but that's kind of the point. He is a king in a kingdom, but this kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. It is an upside-down kingdom. In this kingdom, if you want to find your life, you actually have to lose it. In this kingdom, the way up is actually the way down. If this kingdom, in this kingdom, the first shall actually be last— This is an upside-down kingdom, and in this kingdom, the king is actually a father. And based on what Jesus said and what Paul, how Paul starts his letter here to the Ephesians, I would like to suggest that through Jesus Christ, God is father first, and everything else flows from that. It's like when John tells us that God is love. He doesn't say God loves or God is loving. He says God is love, and it is from his very being of love that everything else flows. So it is with him being father. From God's father heart of love, everything else flows. Not as king first. Otherwise, that's how Jesus would have told us to interact with him. And that's how Jesus himself would have interacted with him. Not as commander or creator or judge first, although he is all of those things. But as father first. Now let's be honest. For some of us, that doesn't doesn't make us comfortable. Right? That makes us maybe a little bit uncomfortable. Because here's the deal. If I can keep God as a boss, or as a judge, or even as a commander, then I can have a purely cerebral relationship with him. I don't have to uh, experience intimacy, for instance. I don't have to get vulnerable with a boss or a commander. But when you start talking about God as my father, it gets a little bit vulnerable. That's relational language, and relationships require stuff like trust, Requires stuff like vulnerability and intimacy. And when God moves from master or whatever to father, it starts to feel a little bit emotional for some of us. And some of us can start to get a little bit clammy or we can start to get a little bit squirmy in our seat. And so it's safer for us to keep God in the box of boss or king or commander. But this father thing, guys, is not my invention. I didn't make this up. It's not how I want to see God. So I'm interjecting my view of how I want to see God into this text. It's here in the text. Can I be totally honest with you? Like personally honest with you? I've been following Jesus for 20-something years, and I've always loved Jesus. I've always been down with Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And I've been pretty down with the Holy Spirit too. But for me, God as father— has been always this very distant, disconnected, very holy, very sovereign, maybe a little bit scary, maybe a little bit angry, maybe a little bit disappointed at me sometimes, kind of a God. I had no idea how to relate to God as Father. It wasn't until a couple of years ago when we we lost our baby and I went through some um, really hard stuff with my own earthly father that I, I started, I began to know God. It was actually a really gnarly breakthrough in my life. And I began to know God as my father. See, I had two incredibly meaningful relationships with my mother and my stepmother growing up. But I had two incredibly difficult and strenuous relationships with my father and my stepfather growing up. And so I I get the uncomfortableness that this is for some of you. But listen, God is wanting to redeem that idea of father for you this season. And quite frankly, I think he's wanting to blow your minds and change your life with his father's heart for you. Or maybe your earthly relationship with your father wasn't hard. It was just kind of like, eh, yeah, it's it's fine. I mean, yeah, it could have been a lot better, but it was fine. And so for you, you have no context of what like an incredible relationship with father would even look like. I get it. I get the whole thing. But this is how the Bible talks about God. In this kingdom... The king is a father. Now, some of you are like, dude, when I hear the word father, it, just, it sounds like a man. It sounds like male. And I don't do men. I don't do husbands. I don't do boyfriends. I don't do guy friends. I don't, I don't trust brothers. I don't trust fathers. I don't trust 
men. And father sounds like a man. Well, hold on. We're not talking about a man here. We're not talking about male here. When we say that God is father, we're not talking about him being male. God is neither male nor female. He is not human. Right? He is other. But we are contained within our human languages and minds to try to describe who God is and what he is like, even though he's beyond our comprehension and language. And so we're left to try to best, do the best that we can with our human words that we have. And in the first century, when this was being written, there was no context for a single mother family. The fathers led the homes. The fathers led the parenting. The fathers were in charge of the spiritual, physical, emotional well-being of their whole family. And so Scripture refers to God not as father because he is male, but because he is the divine, perfect parent who leads his family and children and cares for their spiritual, physical, and emotional well-being. This isn't a male-female thing. This is a parental thing. In fact, to give us a broader picture— of who God is and how he relates to us, we see that Jesus, it says that Jesus, he wanted to gather Israel like a mother, gather Israel like a mother hen gathers her chicks. Now, does that mean that God is female? No. Referring to God as father, though, doesn't make him male either. The Bible says that humanity was created in the image of God. Male and female, both created in the image of God is what the Bible says. And so that means, women, that your emotional sensitivity that you may have, you get that from God. You were created in the image of God. Men, that, that critical thinking that you may have, you get that from the nature of God. You were created in the image of God. That maternal instinct, that paternal instinct— You, male and female, both created in the image of God, from God. And God is perfectly and completely, in and of himself, a whole being, not human. He is other. So when we read the words of Jesus, that he wants to gather Israel like a mother hen gathers her chicks, we should not read that God is a woman. We should read that God protects and cares for his children like only a mother can care for and protect Uh, her children, like a mother hen, can care for and protect her chicks. And when we read that God is a father, we can't interject our own presuppositions about men or about our fathers onto him. What we should read is that God interacts with his children like the best parent ever could, like more than you could imagine. But the Bible does use the word father, and so we're going to talk about him as such. And if you had or have the most incredible father that you could ever imagine, that's awesome. But hear God saying, he was created in my image. That good stuff that he has, he got that from me. He got that from me. And it's just a foreshadow. It's just a foreshadow of who I am. It's just a taste of who I am as father. So first, in the kingdom of God, the king is a father. And in any family, especially in the first century, the family takes on the culture of the father, for better or for worse. But for better or worse, the family takes on the culture of the father, certainly in the first century. Nowadays, we may not have a context for that because some families don't even have a father or maybe even a mother. But family always starts with father. And that's how it is in the kingdom of God, too. Even physiologically, right? Family always starts with Father. Kingdom of God, same way. From Father, everything else and everyone else flows. Second thing I want us to see in Ephesians 1 is that in the kingdom of God, the citizens are children. In the kingdom of God, the citizens are children. We saw it in verse 5. We read it a few minutes ago of uh, Ephesians 1. It says that he predestined us to be adopted. He predestined us to be adopted. We are adopted. That means that we are children. We are citizens in the kingdom, yes. But see, when you keep yourself as a citizen, you could be disconnected. You don't have to have any relationship with the king. But remember, in this kingdom, the king is a father. That speaks relationship. And in this kingdom, the citizens are actually 
children. And this is the foundation, guys, for who we are as Christians. This is our identity and the core of our identity, children of God. Now, there's lots of facets to that identity for sure, and we're going to see a lot of them in the book of Ephesians. But where does it all stem from? Where does it all come from? It all comes from our sonship. And when I say sonship, don't hear like sons and not daughters. I'm using the term broadly. It means that we are children of God. And it's not that our sonship is part of our identity. It is the foundation of our identity. Sonship is the foundation of identity. Every part of who we are flows and is because of our identity as being chosen, adopted children of God. We are citizens in a kingdom for sure, but in this kingdom, the king is a father. And in this kingdom, the people who get to enter the gates of the king father are the children of the king. They are the kingdom kids. This is our identity, and our identity is the foundation from which we live. It is the root system from which our trees grow and then begin to bear fruit, whatever that fruit may be. And so you got to ask yourself, are you bearing like weird fruit that's not good for looking or tasting? Or people are like, I don't, your fruit of your life is strange. Or you're like, I don't like the fruit of my life. I don't know what to do. Maybe the root system has been corrupted. Your, the root system of your identity has been corrupted by false doctrine about who you are and about who God is. Let me say it another way. If your root system is corrupted by false ideas about who God is and who you are to God— then you should not expect to bear healthy, vibrant, life-giving, spiritual, emotional, or relational fruit. And maybe it's not your fault. You know, it's easy to believe lies or half-truths about ourselves and God, especially when the whole world around us and even people who are close to us, well-meaning, but they don't know the truth. And sometimes even spiritual leaders are saying things, preaching false things or partial truths about who we are and who God is. You know, we all have things that have defined us over the years about who we are. But the question is, who does God say you are? The question is, who does God say you are? And where are we are drawing our ideas about who we are from? Who are you? What, what are you? Because that will determine how you live. That will determine how you lead. That will determine how you love, how you give love to others, and how you receive love from others. And some of us have believed lies. You don't even know they're lies, maybe, for so long that we're, like, we're tweaked on, like, if they're even truth or not. And quite frankly, some of those lies have such a glossy um, spiritual or religious facade that they look really pious and really spiritual. And so we don't even realize That they're from religion and not relationship. But religion corrupts the root system. And so then everything starts to grow like that. Because everything builds from the roots. The foundation from which we live is the root system. The root system affects everything else. And so if, for instance, I view my identity as servant of God first, then here's what's going to happen. I'm going to hear a call from God and he's going to say, Dominic, I want you to do something. I want you to move to Saudi Arabia, okay? I want you to move to the nation, something gnarly and big, right? I want you to take your family and move to Saudi Arabia. I'm going to then respond out of duty, out of obligation to obey my master. Contrast that with if I'm a son and I view myself primarily as a son first and everything else second, then I'm going to hear that exact same call as not a duty but an invitation, And not to an obligation, but an invitation to join in, in partnership, not just in obedience, but in partnership with my Father who is inviting me into doing something with Him. And so the the way that we view ourselves, the foundation from which we live as our identity, changes everything else. See, servants Live out of fear. You never know if you're going to have a job. You never know if you're going to get punished. You don't know if you're in good standing or not. You don't know if you're going to be able to work for the, 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 the boss or not. But children are always children. Children are always children. Sorry, you can't get rid of that kid you want to get rid of. Like, you can't get rid of them. They're always your children. They are locked in. It is in our DNA. It is the foundation, then, Christian, of our DNA that we are children of God. You may serve your father. That's cool. 
You may serve your father, that's great, but your DNA is child of God. Some of you say, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm a Christian. I, 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 I follow Christ. I imitate Christ. That's what I do. That is my identity. Christian, it means little Christ. I'm an imitator of Christ. Isn't that enough? Okay, okay, I get that, I get that. And you could stop there. And many Christians, many of us in this room do stop there. We're like, that's it. I follow Christ. I imitate what Christ does. I'm going to do what he does, and then I'm good. But okay, where is that coming from, though? Where is the root of that coming from? You've got to take it deeper, one step further, because the place from which we are living and following and imitating Christ is of utmost importance. And I would say that for the vast majority of us, we're not living from a place of beloved child first. It's probably something else first, and then beloved child maybe second or third or something like that. Tell me if, if any of this resonates with you. I'm going to put some stuff up on the screen. Tell me if any of these resonate as your primary identifier of how you identify yourself in relationship to God. I am a worker in the kingdom of God. I am a servant in the kingdom of God. I am a bond slave in the kingdom of God. I am a soldier in the kingdom of God. I am a warrior in the kingdom of God. I am a manager or steward in the kingdom of God. I am an ambassador in the kingdom of God. I am a priest in the kingdom of God. There's other ones I didn't put up here, but you get the idea here. And all of us, each of us resonate probably with one or a few of these. And here's the deal. These are actually true things about us, Christian. These are actually true things about us. But they are only true because we are children first. And if all of these things don't flow out of an identity of being child first, then our whole paradigm gets tweaked and cockeyed and we begin to view everything out of sorts. Our failures, all jacked up and tweaked the way we view them. Our successes, tweaked. Our callings, our mission, how we do mission, why we do mission, who God is, how we see God, how he relates to us, what he thinks about us, how he responds to us, all of it is tweaked and cockeyed if we're not living from the foundation of child first. When you ask yourself, who am I? Who am I? What's the answer? Let me make it a little bit more personal here. Let me make it a little bit more personal. Some of us are like, I, I, I'm a man. I'm a, I'm a woman. Or I'm a, whatever your role is in your family. I'm a brother. I'm a sister. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm a parent. Or what a lot of us do is we say, hey man, who are you? Tell me, hey girl, who are you? It's like, whatever your occupation is. I am fill in the blank. Or maybe it's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual gift maybe. I am teacher. I am prophet. I am administrator. I am pastor, right? Fill in the blank, whatever that is. Or for some of you, the most true thing about you that's just like core in your being is your sexual identity. You, maybe you love Jesus, but since the time you can remember, you've been same-sex attracted. And so you've come into this place where you're like, I am gay. That's like the purest thing about me. It's the truest thing about me. Or maybe it's like, no, I am not gay. I am straight. That's the, that's the most true thing about me. That's the thing that I identify deep in my core. Everything else lives from that place. Some of you, it's, I'm single. I'm single right now. That is like the truest thing about me. Some of you, it's like, I'm single and available is the truest thing <laughs> about me right now. Whatever, whatever it is, these things may be truthful things about who you are, about your genetic makeup, or about your social status, or whatever. But if you are a born-again child of God, as we will see in the book of Ephesians, none of this is what is truest about you. The truest thing about you is who you are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, the truest thing about you is that you are a child of God first. But I would say the vast majority of Christians don't see themselves primarily as a child first and then everything else second. We see ourselves as some other thing first and then child maybe second or third down the road. And I get it, right? Because who wants to be a child? 
Even when we're children, we don't want to be children. Now that we're adults, I mean, we might like be jealous of the lack of responsibility that a kid has to have or whatever, but we don't want to be treated as children. But Jesus said, unless you become like a child, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. There's so much there, and we won't unpack it today, but there's something pure and right about allowing ourselves to be children in the kingdom of God. And we don't have to be infants or toddlers or even like squirmy junior hires, but we do need to allow ourselves to be children. No offense, junior hires, I love you. There's something about this, right? There's something about this child thing. I mean, why did Jesus come as a son? Why did Jesus come as the son of God? He's not the birth son of God. God's not human. He doesn't have kids like humans do. Why is Jesus called the son of God? Well, first of all, him being called the son of God is a declaration of his deity, right? Him being the son of God says he is God in human flesh. But also, because in the first century to be a son meant something very specific in that culture. It meant that the son, Jesus, had all the access and authority of his father, And it also demonstrated relationship like no other relationship can be demonstrated. The father-son thing speaks of intimacy. Sonship demonstrates intimate relationship. And God has always been after intimate relationship. We see it all the way back in the Old Testament, all the way from back in the Old Testament. But then we definitely see it in the father's first interaction with Jesus when he's baptized right there at the beginning of his ministry. This, This interaction between the father and the son is so intimately relational. This is not an interaction of a servant and a master or of a soldier and a commander or of an ambassador and a king. This is the interaction of a father and a son. What did the father say about Jesus? Matthew three seventeen. he said, this is my, okay, he made it personal. This is my beloved, he made it intimate, son, relationship. This personal, intimate relationship. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. My beloved son. Personal, intimate relationship. Later in Luke 9, the father would do this again when he'd open up the heavens on the Mount of Transfiguration. He'd speak down and he'd say again, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Right there he was giving authority, saying whatever he says goes. This was the practice of every Jewish family who had a son in the first century. When their son was of age, they would bring them out into the town square where everybody would gather and all the dealings would happen and they'd be trading stuff and bartering and selling stuff and buying stuff. And they'd bring their son, oldest son, out into the town square when he was of age and he would say, hold on everybody, everybody stop. This is, and they would introduce their son, this is my son. And then they'd say something about him. From now on, whatever he says, he's saying on my behalf. Whatever he says goes. Whatever he says represents me and my family. This is what Jesus, or this is what the Father was doing when he presented Jesus, when he spoke down from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so Jesus comes as a son who had all the approval, all of the blessing, all of the acceptance and authority of the Father. But Jesus also had all the preference and access of the Father. This is important because this can apply to us in just a second. Listen to this. Jesus had all the preference and access of the Father. Raise your hand if you got any kids. Okay, cool. So here's the deal. You may love somebody else's kids and kind of prefer them and kind of give them some access, but nobody has preference and access like your own kids, right? Well, Jesus had all the access and preference of heaven because his Father was the King of heaven. Slaves don't get that kind of preference and access. Soldiers don't get that kind of access. Ambassadors don't get that kind of access. Only children have access to everything that is their father's. Maybe not in your house do your kids get full access. But in God's house, kids have full access. And so then Jesus enters into people's lives with all of the access of the Son of God. And what does he do? He invites all others into it. He invites others into adoption. Wait, hold on. Jesus, the son of who? God. Okay, this isn't some distant king who's just like kind of this mediocre ruler of some like weird little province somewhere. God, king of heaven and earth, son of God comes. And with all the authority and access of heaven, he comes and he says, 
Guys, my father has given me all of the authority to go out and as his son, gather all of the orphans and bring them into our family. And when he invites people to follow him into his family, it's not as, it's not as co-servants. He doesn't invite us in as, as co-ambassadors or co-soldiers or co-partners. But as we will see in Ephesians 3, it is as co-heirs. It is as co-heirs. He doesn't say, follow me as servant and I will show you what the king is like. He says, follow me as child and I will show you what the father is like. Christian, we're not co-workers, co-soldiers, co-ambassadors, co-laborers first. We are co-heirs first. And all of that other stuff that is true about us must flow out of being co-heirs, which means sons and daughters first. Co-heirs. We're talking about the first century here, right? You didn't, you didn't write in your neighbor as a co-heir just because he felt like family. This is only talking about real family, adopted or natural, but family. And in that family, typically the firstborn son received a double share of the inheritance. And if there was land or a business or some kind of estate to manage, the firstborn son would become the steward of that estate. How many of you are middle children in your family? Middle children, raise your hands. Okay. This is the same deal. How many of you guys are older, oldest children? Youngest children? That's so crazy. This is the same way last service. This is the middle kids were like, so little, maybe because there's only two kids in a family or something like that. But I was thinking maybe middle kids are so jacked they don't even go to church. <laughs> I'm a middle kid. <laughs> so you know, you know what happens with the middle kids, right? The fathers, the, the older sons or older kids get all the privilege, the the baby gets, like, spoiled. The middle kids kind of get the brunt end of the deal, right? We turned out all right. We're going to be all right. But that, that's not what Jesus is inviting us into, guys. This isn't like a middle child thing. He's not inviting us into the, the brunt end of stuff. Jesus invites us into his identity as the firstborn son of God. As the firstborn, the one who gets the double inheritance, the one who has the, the biggest allotment of the inheritance. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the only natural, so to speak, heir of the Father. Not as a servant, not as a prophet, not as a messenger or an ambassador first, but as a son first. Invites us not to just follow his ways or emulate him, but to be co-heirs with him as children. And his inheritance is the whole universe. It's everything that exists. Hebrews 1-2 says that the Son has been appointed heir of all things. And as co-heirs, we share in this inheritance with Christ. What belongs to Jesus will also belong to you, child of God. Christ gives us his glory, it says in John 17, and his riches, it says in 2 Corinthians 8. And all things, Hebrews 1 says, Christian, we are as welcome in God's family as Jesus is because we are accepted in the beloved, as we'll see in the book of Ephesians. And this is not only the truest thing about you. This is the best and most critical thing about who you are and your identity. And the very foundation of who we are. And if we don't get this, we will be like a ship sailing that's always a couple of degrees off. Always wondering, why can't I get there? And why do I always keep ending up shipwrecked? Our identity as kingdom kids is the root. It is the root system that produces trees that bear sustainable, vibrant, healthy, life-giving fruit. So this is a kingdom that we're living in for sure. But in this kingdom, the king is a father and the citizens are children. And lastly, and briefly, in the kingdom of God... The community is a family. That was the last thing that we saw in that section of Scripture we read from Ephesians 1. We were not adopted, just me. It doesn't say, and I was. Paul didn't say, and I was chosen for adoption, or you were chosen for adoption. He says, and we were. He adopted us. He is our Father, it says in verse 2. He is our Lord in verse 3. He has blessed us. Us with every spiritual uh, blessing. It is this very familial language. 
So in the kingdom, the king is a father, and the citizens are his children. But the children have brothers and sisters. In this kingdom, the community is a family, and it should act like a family. I want to share a phrase with you that has profoundly impacted and honestly kind of changed uh, Emily and my life this last year. It's very simple. It just says, the kingdom of God should look like family. It's changed so much of the way that we view one another. We view you guys, the, the way we view people who are outside of the family, not in the kingdom yet, the way that we view God. And in this family, there is a father, and you are a child. But you're not an only child. Raise your hand if you're an only child growing up. All right, cool. That's not your fault. You couldn't have done anything about it, right? And I'm not knocking you for being an only child. But you know how it is when you have an only child. You don't have the same opportunities to have to, like, share and have to wait your turn and stuff like that in your family because you don't have siblings. Or I have to look out for, like, protecting my younger sibling or something like that. And that's, that's fine. Like I said, I'm not knocking uh, only children. But in the kingdom of God, we are not only children. We are not an only child. We are looking out for the, the benefit of one another. And like we'll see in the book of Ephesians, we are quite literally delicately interwoven together as a family. Paul used this word body, and that we're all members of a body working together as joint heirs with Christ. And so then, if we are woven together as a, a body, as a family, and yet we are co-heirs with Christ, how then do we treat one another? How do we interact with one another? How do we think about one another? How do we do relationships? How do we do sexuality? How do we treat people who are different than us? And if we're all co-heirs, and yet we have these different, like, practical relationships, like, I got a kid, and she's a co-heir, and I'm her father, but I'm a co-heir, and we're co-heirs, and yet there's this, like, father-daughter thing, or my wife, and there's this uh, husband-wife thing, and yet we're co-heirs, and yet we have different roles. How does that work? We're going to look at all of this stuff in the book of Ephesians. And the foundation of it all is love. If individual identity must grow from a foundation of being children of God, then family must grow from a foundation of the love of God. And that's why Paul, in the middle of his letter to the Ephesian church, stops and he prays for them that they would be rooted and firmly established in love. The NESB says, and grounded in love, that they would be rooted. That is, their roots would be love that they, they grow from and that they would be firmly established or grounded. That is, the ground would be love. The foundation that they build on would be love. In the kingdom, family, love is the foundation of all things. It has to be. It has to be the, the starting point. It has to be the root system that everything else grows from. And we'll see this in the family of God, and we'll see this in family families. We look at Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, and we start talking about marriage and children relationships and all that stuff. In the kingdom of God, community is a family, and that means that the church is a family, but the foundation of that family is love. We talked about it when we looked at spiritual gifts. Love is the motivator, and love is the goal when we're talking about how the body of Christ works. And it's actually, you know what, written into the very fabric of our being is who we are as image bearers of God. We were created in the image of God, and everything God does, He does from the foundation of love, because God is love. And as I said earlier, certainly in the first century, family takes on the culture of the father. Well, in this family, the family takes on the culture of the father too. And the father is God, and God is love. So in this kingdom, the king is a father, the citizens are children, and the community is a family. And that's really going to be the starting point for us for this series. And that's where we spend in the next several months Maybe years, I don't know, maybe till Jesus comes back. Who knows? And then from there, I won't get into it now. We'll, do go, we'll go into the third section, which we'll be talking about kingdom come. From that foundation of identity, from that foundation of love as a family, what does it look like for the kingdom to come, not just in us, but also through us to our communities and contexts. Now, before I, I'm done here, but I just want to say this. Um, maybe there's somebody here today who you're not a Christian, so what that means for you is that you're not a child of God yet, and God's not your father. He's your creator, and he loves you, but he's not your father yet, because you're an orphan, spiritually speaking. You haven't been brought into the family. But Jesus came, 
to remove the barrier between you and God. That's why he died on the cross. Your barrier was your sin. And when he died on the cross, he bore the penalty of your sin so that your sin could be taken away, so the barrier could be taken away, so you could come into the family of God. It was like, it was like the payment. It was like, the, you know how you got to pay a bunch of money to adopt somebody? Jesus' life was the payment to bring in the orphans. And today, if you don't know God yet as your father, today he's inviting you. He's inviting you to put your trust in his son, Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the removal of your sins, so you can come into his family. And we'll give you an opportunity to do that during this second set of musical worship. Listen, guys, this, this summer was a, um, it was, a, it was a powerful time as a church. And I use that word um, specifically. God was moving, breaking into people's lives like water breaking through a dam. And he did it with power. And everything God does is powerful. But I believe that this next season for us is not just going to be powerful, but it's going to be very personal. Um, it's, it's probably going to be very internal for many of us and very intimate and maybe even quiet, the work that God will do. But it's going to be a good season. So I'd like to ask the band to come up right now, and we're going to pray. And as I pray, I'm going to pray Paul's words for us. Paul prayed this prayer for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3, and um, I'm going to pray that for us as well. Let's pray together. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every father and every family in heaven and on earth is named. And I pray, this is my prayer and our prayer for us this season, for you. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Lord, this is our prayer for this next season as a church as well. We ask that you would do this in us, and not just in us, Lord, but through us to the world around us. Thank you for the very personal work that you're wanting to do in many of our lives. And we just, we say yes and amen to it. We ask that even right now you'd start that, that new personal work if you want to start something in our lives, that you would start that here. And church, we're gonna, what we're going to do now is we're going to go into the second set of worship. And this time um, is a time of response for us. And that's why we have the carpets here. It's a time for you to take a physical posture to help you, your heart get in line. Um, the prayer team is on the right and the left. They would love to pray for you for anything you need prayer for, whether it's related to what we talked about today or not. If you're not in the family of God yet, that means God's not your father, you're not a child yet, but God invites you in through the finished work of his son, Jesus. And when you put your faith in him, that is Jesus and his work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, you become a child of God. Today, these people would love to pray for you and help you with that if you'd like. The communion elements are here for Christians to remember what Jesus did. Take the, the bread and remember his body was broken. and Take the cup, remember that his blood was spilled. But before you leave, if you sense, yeah, this is good. God's wanting to do a, a work in my life in this season. And it's this deep identity work. It's this foundation root system kind of work in my life where he's going to be trimming off stuff and cutting stuff and reminding me the place that I live from as a child of God and all that. Maybe today is just a, all right, I'm just going to pause and I'm going to reflect and I'm going to say, all right, Lord, here I am. Here I am. Do what you want to do in my life in this season.